Um, we've been in the book of Matthew, so if you have your Bible, grab it and open it up to chapter 27. We have been in the uh, Gospel of Matthew for longer than I think it took the disciples to go th- live through it. So two more weeks, people, and we are done. We're like almost here. And so um, why don't you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 27, and then would you please stand for the reading of Scripture? If you have not met Samantha, she's a new uh, family member in our church, just moved from Austin, Texas in April, on Easter. Was that like your first weekend? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, we have new family members in our church here. This, and actually, is there anyone else who's like moved here in the last year to Portland? In the, oh my gosh, like welcome to Bridgetown, family. Like, this is awesome. Welcome home. Would you please stand and stay standing for the reading of Scripture? Today's scripture reading is Matthew 27, 55 through Matthew 28, 15. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They'd followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb as secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. 
Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, where they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This is God's word for us. So may we be good hearers of the word and better doers. May we love Jesus deeply. May we trust what Jesus says. May we follow Jesus well. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever waited to see God show up in your life somehow? Yes? No? Maybe? Have you ever like prayed a prayer asking for God, like, God, how long until you do this thing? I need you to show up. I need help. I need a miracle. I've shared this story like probably every time I've taught because it's so prevalent in my life. One of my best friends, um, she's basically my non-blood sister. Her name's Caitlin. Her husband's name is Jared. They're church planters in Montana. And two years ago, I got a phone call from her freaking out on the phone telling me that her husband at 29 years old has stage four lymphoma leukemia. I know what it's like to be waiting to see God show up. We've been on this journey for the past two years where it's like good news, bad news, good news, good news, bad news, bad news, good news, good news, bad news, bad news, good news. God, will you show up? Will you, will you do it? Will you help out? Have you ever been there? Ever been in one of those situations? Yes? I know stories of people in our church family who have prayed for, for marriages to be restored. God, would you show up? For like miracles in their finances. God, would I need to see you show up. I know the story of kids in this church who are miracles because we prayed that we would see God show up. If you know what it's like to ask God to show up, if you know what it's like to be waiting to see God, to see him do something, if you've ever been there before, you know what it's like to be the people in this moment in Matthew chapter 27. God's people, the people of Israel, have been waiting for centuries for God to show up. Have you ever prayed a prayer that actually doesn't just, it hasn't even just transcended you? Imagine it's going from your, you to your kids, to your grandkids, to your generations of followers of God, of God's people. They're praying for God to show up. They want to see God. Would you deliver us? When are you going to save us? When are you going to show up? When are you going to give us the help? When are we going to see God? The Gospels zoom in on this one woman. Her name is Mary. She's from a place called Magdala. And for some reason, the gospel, the gospel writers are all kind of fascinated with this, this woman. You know, Luke's gospel tells us that this Mary woman, she had seven demons in her. Could you imagine the torment? Not of just one demon, seven. The feeling in your body of like not even being safe or at home in your own skin. The anxiety. I mean, she probably is wondering, would it be better to kill myself, to die than it would be to live another day with seven demons. And who knows, was it a day, was it a week, was it months, was it years? But one moment with seven demons is way too long. Could you imagine the prayers that this woman prayed? God, when am I gonna see you show up for me? Not just for my people, but for me. And then Jesus shows up. And he delivers this woman from seven demons. Could you imagine like the sort of relief that would happen when all of a sudden your mind is completely clear and your body is at ease and the anger and the fear, all these sort of things like discombobulating you, like in your own body, all of a sudden completely at ease with just the word 
of this guy. Wait, this isn't any person. This isn't any man. This, this might be it. This might be the answer to our prayers. Like we've been praying and asking for a Messiah, for a rabbi, for somebody to come and like fix this, to set, where is the rescue of God? Like where is his deliverance? Where is his salvation? Could it be him? You can understand what Mary might be feeling or thinking. She was seven demons exercised out of this woman. And so Mary, and along with so many other people around the Galilee, begin to follow this rabbi. And we've been talking about him for four or five years at this point. Like, you can go back and listen to it, bless you. But we've been talking about him. They've been following him for actually as long as we've been going through this text. They've been following him for three years now, following him, seeing Jesus heal. Could you imagine being there, like, feeding the 5,000 people? plus like women and kids, like all these people getting fed. Could you imagine all the times where they saw demons leaving, where they saw bones growing and sores closing? Like this isn't just like, oh, this is a kind of cool party trick that we like at the end of church. These people who've been waiting to see God show up might have just found him. So there's a buzz in the air. There's this excitement in the air. And Mary, along with so many other people, are following Jesus. They're following him. And yet... Something happens, and we've talked about it for the last three weeks. They put their hopes on him, their dreams in him, their expectations for their nation, for their people, for the salvation and the freedom. And this isn't just like salvation for your soul. This is a people who's oppressed under the boot of another empire. They've been waiting centuries just to be free as a people, and they think their freedom's finally here, and then their freedom dies. He dies. And with his death, all of their hopes and all their expectations, all of their dreams, the plans for their future, not just them, their kids, their babies. We thought this was finally it for our kids to be free. I could endure, but not my kids, not my grandkids. We've been waiting. Where's the salvation of Yahweh? He dies, and you can picture Mary. I mean, the Bible says that the other disciples, they left, but Mary and the women, they stay. And I wonder if this woman who had seven demons exercised from her did she, was she at the cross just maybe waiting out for one moment longer? Will he pull himself down? Can he do it? Will this legion of angels come? Is she waiting for him out of like faith or is she so devoted that she's willing to just stand there as her Messiah dies? She's just that devoted. Either way, she's there and no one else is. This woman, she's at the cross and she watches her rabbi die and the story tells us that a rich man named Joseph, he's able to procure the body of Jesus, pull it off of that cross and begin to wrap it in linen and clothing and prepare it for burial, for burial. He takes the body and puts it in a tomb, a fresh tomb, a new tomb, a costly tomb. And the Bible tells us that Mary watched at that tomb. I mean, she, it says she's seating there. She's sitting, seated, watching the tomb. And then the chief priests, they go, we don't want it to happen what he said was going to happen. So, you know, the disciple, actually, they don't expect it to happen. They go, the disciples might come and steal the body, so let's seal it. And actually, as we were reading this text, I never noticed it before. Did you hear what the verse said? It says that they, they rolled the tomb and then they sealed it. They, they put a stone and then they sealed it. Ain't nothing getting into this tomb. It's closed. And Mary's there watching this all happen. She goes home that night because it's Sabbath. It's getting dark. It's probably the saddest Sabbath of her life. Yet even in the middle of her grief, she's still faithful to God, practices Sabbath. Could you imagine as the sun set the next day and Sabbath ended and she likely went into the market, the Bible tells us that she began to grab burial spices to prepare to go anoint Jesus' body. What they would do is they would, they, tombs were often shared. So that's the note about this tomb being a new tomb. Jesus' body was in a fresh tomb, but other bodies would be brought in eventually. And so she goes to prepare these spices that they could make the tomb not smell as bad as the body decomposes. 
So she grabs the spices, but it's getting dark. So she must have gone back home. There's one more day. She goes back home and she's preparing these spices. Could you imagine how strong that smell would be in her house, filling it that whole night? She couldn't get that smell out of her nose. She's there in the house as the smell of perfume that is going to embalm Jesus' body. And I can't imagine that she slept very long or very hard that night. She probably cried herself to sleep. I mean, the man who was all of her hope and all of her dreams exercised seven demons out of her. The hope of her future is dead. And in the morning, she has to go to the tomb and put on the spices and the perfume and say her final goodbyes. The Bible says she woke up the next morning right before sunlight and begins to pick up her spices and with the other women and walk to the tomb. And Mark's gospel actually tells us that the women were talking with one another going, how are we going to open the tomb? We all saw the stone. They're wondering how they're even going to get into the tomb. But sometimes when you're in these seasons, when you're in grief, when life is just hard, you don't even have the capacity to ever been there. You don't even have the capacity. You just go, I'll figure it out when I get there. These women don't even have a way to open up the stone. They're walking and they're wondering how are they going to even get into the tomb. But while they're wondering and while they're walking, God is behind the scenes working. God's actually answering a prayer that they didn't even pray. These women aren't expecting him to do it. And what does the Bible say? An angel appeared. An angel. Clothes, the appearance of lightning. The earth shakes. This is like Sinai. It's expo- like this angel and it lands and it walks to the tomb and it rolls away the stone. And the Bible says that it sits on the stone in front of the tomb. Ironically, the guards, they're terrified. It actually says they're shaking with fear. They're shook. If you would like translate it that way, they're shook. That's how I would say it. God's are shook. The Bible actually says that they became like dead men. Isn't that ironic? The people who were posted up to protect the body of a dead man from being stolen are shaking like dead men. They're paralyzed with fear. The angel's sitting on the stone, and the women, the women show up to the tomb, and they see this angel on the stone, and they're freaking out. And the angel looks at the women, looks at Mary, and says, you're looking for the crucified Jesus, but he is not here. He is risen. I always used to read that story and think to myself that the angel was rolling away the stone to get Jesus out. And like, I always thought that. And then, you, then I was like, wait a second. Could you imagine Jesus rose up from the grave and he's like pounding on the other side of the stone trying to get out? The angel did not open this, move the stone to let Jesus out. He moved the stone to let the women in. That's right. He moved the stone to let the women in. And here are his, his words, come and see. Come and see. If you want a title for today's sermon, come and see. Actually, do this. This is how I grew up. Turn to somebody next to you and look them in the eye and say, come and see. Oh, just a little bit louder with a smile on your face. Say, come and see. We're invited with the women to come and see, to come explore, to come look. So these women, they hear the news. The angel says, do not be afraid. He has risen. They come, they see, they look into the tomb. His body's not there. And they go, they take off to go see the disciples. They have to go tell them. Do you see how there's an urgency that's spurred when they see that the tomb is empty? An urgency. They go running. And on their way running to see the disciples, Jesus intercepts them. He stops them. Do you see this is the plan and the purpose of God? The women aren't expecting to see Jesus. Jesus shows up, he interrupts them, and he shows up to these women. This whole thing, it's a giant scheme and plan of God. God sent, angels are messengers. So by very nature, God sent these messengers to the women. God shows up to the women. He says, don't be afraid. The women get on their knees and they touch his body. They touch his feet. He has a physical body. They probably see the scars in his hands. They touch him. They begin to worship him. And he says, don't be afraid. I actually want you to go and tell my disciples. And he actually calls them brothers, the news. 
which is crazy to me because you realize he's talking about the people who abandoned him, the people who forsook him, the people who left him, the people who he was with for three years, they abandoned him. And who does Jesus call the people who abandoned him after three years? Brothers. He brings them into proximity. He says, go tell my brothers. So the women, they run off. They go, they go to tell the story. They go to tell the disciples. And as they're running, the Bible says, this is a compare and contrast. As the women are running, the guards are running too. There's two stories that are going on. The women are going to tell, it's actually the same word in Greek. The women are going to tell the story that Jesus' body is risen. He's been risen, he's been raised. And the guards are going to tell something else. The guards go, they talk to the chief priests and the chief priests gather the elders and they begin to conspire. They go, no, 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 we can't get this story out. We can't let it go out. And so they pay off the guards and they also pay off the governor to tell a different sort of story. His disciples took the body. You see what's going on. Matthew is contrasting the women with the guards. He's submitting, and I do that too to you today. He's submitting that there are two stories to trust. The whole gospel of Matthew is actually a story of two kingdoms, of two rulers, of two narratives. And Matthew is closing his gospel. We're almost there. He's closing it with two options of what story to trust. There's two options of what story to trust. Two options, that's it. We all entrust our lives to a story. You, you can't not, like you are in this room because you believe a story about what it means to be human, what it means to live in this place, what it means to be, what it means to have family, what is gonna happen. We all entrust our lives to a story. So my question to you today is not if you have a story, but what story are you living out of? People have provided a ton of stories and dare I say theories about what happened to Jesus' body that day. Now the guards, they were paid off to say that the corpse was stolen by the disciples. disciples. The corpse, the dead body was stolen which honestly doesn't make a ton of sense. Let's just list out the reasons. One, these are soldiers. They're Roman soldiers. They know what they're doing. They were stationed there. This couldn't have been a surprise attack. They were stationed there to make sure this very thing didn't happen. You think some disciples who ran away just the other night are gonna be able to take out the Roman soldiers that are stationed there? Probably not. Thank you. That was, that was great. Talking back to me, sis. Samantha, you with me, sis. Y'all can be too. You can join her if you'd like. It wouldn't make sense. Second of all, if the, two, if the guards, for some reason, they don't sleep. Like, these guards, they're not going to sleep. If the guards fell asleep at the tomb, they likely could have been punished by death. They're not going to risk their lives for that. Third of all, if for some crazy reason they fell asleep at the tomb, you're not going to be able to roll this stone away without waking up the guards. It doesn't make sense. And lastly, if you were asleep, how did you know it was the disciples? Just logically, that story doesn't hold up. <laughs> and any parent in the room would say, Amen. Other stories are perpetuated, though, to this day. Some say that he didn't really die. But let me tell you, Rome was very good at killing. Some say that the women went to the wrong tomb, which I think is insulting. These women were smart. They were there at the cross. They watched. That is why Matthew is telling you that she sat outside the tomb. That is insulting to say these women went to the wrong tomb. Some say that it was a twin. We have twins in this church. It doesn't take you very long to figure out the difference between two twins, especially if you followed around one of them for three years. <laughs> Some say the disciples were hallucinating but that's not how hallucinations work. This isn't just one appearance. This is multiple appearances in multiple places over multiple times, eating food. You don't have, different hallucin you don't have the same hallucination in different places with different people at different times. Some say that the body just went missing, and I would just say that is not what the women are claiming. You have to deal with their actual claim. Some say it was all a conspiracy, and I would just say there's nothing to gain from this. What did they have to gain from saying his body was alive? There was no prestige, there was no honor, there was no reward, there was nothing. Some say they meant resurrection as a metaphor. They have other words. This was not a ghost. This was not a spirit. Their language is actually better. It's more complex. 
They were not talking about a, re- a, a metaphor. They were not talking about a ghost or a spiritual experience. They're claiming to have touched his body. First John says, those who we have seen it with our own eyes and felt it with our own hands. They're making a claim. And some of us today, probably in our city, would say, well, they were superstitious. We know better than to believe in miracles like that 2,000 years later. And I would just say, just because we're living 2,000 years later does not make us that much smarter or better. That is what we would call, or C.S. Lewis would call, chronological snobbery. Living at a later date does not make you smarter. I don't say that to be sarcastic. I just want to actually honor these people for what they're actually claiming so that we can take it seriously. When they say the body is raised, they are not saying that just sometimes people die and then they get back up. These people know what it's like to watch people die. They're not saying that just sometimes the dead are raised or just sometimes or even every once in a while people live after dying. This is saying something completely different. It is saying that something pivotal has happened in human history. Come and see that something is broken in. Maybe humanity works really hard to diminish the resurrection because if Jesus has risen from the dead, then everything else he said is true. And then everything changes. One commentator wrote, denying the resurrection left everybody, everybody's worldview intact. The Jews could continue, could continue as they had done. The Romans could keep on going on, running on the world their way. Philosophers could still debate their lofty doctrines. Nobody would need to make a radical readjustment. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, and if people were to start reordering their lives by it, they would be on a collision course with the rest of the world. Matthew knew it as well as we do. The resurrection, friends, is not neutral news. It's not a concept that's just theological that we can just go, okay, yeah, that's nice, and move away from. We are saying that this man died and was raised to life as the new king, or he was not. There's a new humanity, or there is not. This is not neutral news. We can trust the guards or some other hypothesis of what happened to the body. Resurrection didn't really happen. Or we can trust the voice of women. What explains the life of the early church better than the resurrection? Listen to me for a moment. Resurrection claims that there is a new kingdom and a new humanity that is breaking in. You realize that Luke's gospel actually says that the disciples, they didn't believe the, they didn't believe the story at first. The women tell them and the disciples don't actually believe it at first. That's horrible PR if you're trying to make up a religion. Like anyone on a marketing team would say, you don't write that into the story unless maybe it's true. The news was so Hard to believe that they didn't believe it at first. But examine with me for a moment. This is a patriarchal society. This is a society both in the Roman world and in the Jewish world where the testimony of women did not even hold up in the court of law. Yet, all four gospel writers choose to show that the women were the first at the empty tomb. Women are the ones who stay and endure the shame of Jesus' death. Women are the ones who wait and watch Jesus' burial. Women are the ones to whom God sends an angel. Women are the first to come and see the empty tomb. Women are the first to see Jesus resurrected from the dead. Women are the first missionaries, evangelists, and preachers. Jesus' inbreaking kingdom, it differed from the kingdoms of this world because it valued the voice of women in a society that didn't, even at the risk of it not being heard. The whole linchpin of the gospel is the resurrection, and it's entrusted to the voices of women. In her work confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin notes that the early church was majority female. Yale professor Stephen Carter points out that today, around the globe, the most people likely to be Christians are women of color. So for a second, if you think you're attacking a white man's religion, you are so twisted and backwards. Women of color. 
more likely, around the globe to be followers of Jesus. The resurrection explains why the church would become this new sort of people, this new sort of humanity. It ex- just think about the conversions of people who were actually enemies of Jesus, like Paul. What else explains it but the resurrected Jesus? Think about the weekly gathering for Jews to move to what we now call the Lord's Day. Think about the worship of Jesus for a group of people who are monotheists, who would not ever worship another human, unless all of a sudden they began to see is God. What explains the self-sacrifice, the hospitality, the generosity, the eating of meals, or a new family that crossed social, economic, sex, age, cultural, and ethnic divides? The resurrection of Jesus did. Because the resurrection says there's a new humanity, a new kingdom. It's breaking in, and it's happening now. And so let's start the party off. Can you see what's going on? Nothing explains the lives of early Jesus followers better than the resurrection. But friends, nothing explains their deaths better than the resurrection. Let me say that one more time. Nothing better explains the deaths of early followers of Jesus better than the resurrection. See, people, they may live for a lie. You might live for a lie that you created, but you won't die for one you created, especially not the way they died. Being dragged out of your homes, families ripped apart. You know, the stories go that some of the disciples were grabbed by each limb, tied to four different horses and ripped apart, boiled alive. Some thousands of Christians were crucified or lit lit as human torches to light the city. They were fed to wild beasts, eaten by lions and animals. Yet they met all their suffering with singing. Why? They saw the resurrected Jesus. The only thing that explains the death is the or their deaths is the resurrected Jesus. I'm here to argue and to propose that resurrection is a deeply intelligent position to take. It's a very intelligent way to look at all the facts. And it has been taken by a deeply diverse group of women and men all over the world for two thousand years. So Matthew leaves you and I with two different proclamations. There's two kingdoms. There's two stories, either empire or kingdom. He's dead or he's alive. Everything's the same or new creation has begun. Both decisions require trust. And so my question to you is what story will you trust your life with? What story will you trust your life with? Now, if you struggle with resurrection, if you struggle with it, I'm not here to like put you on blast. I'm not here to shame you. I understand. You actually are not alone. There was a pastor named Paul. <clears> this <throat> pastor named Paul. And he wrote to a group of followers of Jesus in a city as crazy as ours called Corinth. And they were struggling with the resurrection. If you have a Bible, actually really, if you don't have a Bible, just use the internet. But I encourage you... <laughs> In the course of this week, I encourage you every day to just go read 1 Corinthians 15. If you could do anything this week, start every morning by reading 1 Corinthians 15. I promise you it'll change. It'll put a little pep in your step. Here's what Paul says to a church that is struggling with resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Ooh, we're just going to read scripture because we got time. Here we go. He says, now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and everyone in this room should say amen to that. 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. Do you see what he's claiming? You can go talk to these people who saw him. It's a claim. You can't write, if he wrote this, which he did, you could go argue with him and say, okay, let me go talk to Sue. Sue didn't say it. No, no, no. He claims 500 people, starts to list them off by name. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me. Paul saying there is no gospel message without resurrection. Skip over to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Do you see what he's saying? If we don't believe that we will one day be raised, we cannot say that Christ has actually been raised. I always read that backwards. I said, if I don't believe Christ has been raised, then I can't be. Paul is arguing, if you don't even believe that you will be raised, if you trust in Jesus, you can't with integrity believe that Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation, it is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, who he did not raise up. In fact, if in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in, this, in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. You're pitiful. Pity the fool, as Mr. T would say. Paul's the OG. Paul says, I pity the fool. That says they follow Jesus and don't believe that we too will be raised. Verse 26, the last enemy to be abolished is death. If Christ has not been raised, then death actually wins. Verse 33 goes on to say, do not be deceived. Actually, no, we'll keep going in order. Verse 30, he says, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I must boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's saying if Christ isn't raised and if we won't be raised, then let's just eat and drink. Tomorrow's not coming, we're gonna die. And friends, this is Portland. This is us. This is the waters that we swim in. Eat, drink, watch, live compulsively, chase experience, avoid all forms of discipline and discomfort. Recently with me, it's been food. I was talking to my girlfriend and then some of my best friends about it these last like, couple months. The Spirit's been showing me like I have a bad relationship with food. I think I have a good relationship with food some days, but... I have a bad relationship with food where I compulsively, like, I have to eat and I have to go to the restaurant. I have to keep trying. And when I'm sad or when I'm frustrated, then I just go find some sugar somewhere and always have a cookie in my apartment, not just as a form of eating, but as a form of comfort. Why can I, why do I even sometimes overeat? Why do I feel like I have to keep trying the next place and go to Mama Bird one more time? <laughs> because somewhere deep in my heart, I believe a story that this is the best there is. This is it, so I need to eat, I need to act out, I need to live compulsively because this is it, tomorrow we die. Last week, Josh came and he invited us politely to come and die. <laughs> but we have a hard time dying, don't we? Maybe we have a hard time dying because we really believe that this is it. I mean, you have a hard time dying if this is it, if this life is all there is, then why would I die each day? 
Why do we have this nagging feeling that we can't miss out on experiences or we won't make it through disappointment or we can't endure any more suffering? Is it because we think that this is all there really is? Verse 33, says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. What he's actually saying is that without the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection, without the new kingdom and the new humanity, our moral framework and vision is useless. It actually does not make sense to live into Jesus' vision for a new humanity if that new humanity is not coming. So without believing in the resurrection, without trusting our lives to it, our moral fabric just kind of erodes. It doesn't make sense. Listen to me, if the guards are telling the truth, then Jesus' body was stolen. He is dead, and he was a liar. Oppression, empire, and darkness win. Food in Portland is as good as life gets. So live however. We're stuck. There is no hope. But if the women are telling the truth, if Jesus is risen, then he is more than just a teacher. Amen? He is more than just a teacher. He is more than just a prophet. He is more than just an example. He is Israel's Messiah, which means that Jesus is the true king of the nations. His kingdom, not any other, will be one of jubilee, of peace, of freedom for all people. And it will have no end. And it is coming. Could you imagine this happening around Passover week? Remember, Passover just finished, a week that is tied up to nationalistic hopes for this people of God. Imagine on Independence Day saying a new kingdom is coming or Juneteenth, a place of peace that will have no end. If Jesus is risen, then the powers of darkness have been given an eviction notice. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and it's coming. There's a new Passover and a new exodus from slavery of sin and death. If Jesus is risen, then the devil and the demonic are on a clock. Their time is running out. If Jesus is risen, there is a new creation and it has begun. It started with Jesus' resurrection, but that is not the end. It's actually only just the beginning. If Jesus is risen, then kingdoms, nations, empires, injustice, human trafficking, racism, sickness, poverty, cancer, fear, suffering, evil, the demonic, the devil, and whatever else you want to fill in the blank is coming to an end. If Jesus is risen, then we have something worth telling others. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. Now, family, this is not an abstract theological concept. If you hear this today and spectate and then just walk away going, yes, the resurrection, that's beautiful. This is not abstract. I think the resurrection of the body, the future resurrection that we will all be raised because Jesus has been raised, the new creation is coming. I actually think it deals with two of humanity's biggest issues. I think it deals with fear and deals with suffering. Fear. I used to work with university students at a Christian college. I went to one, it's called Northwest. It's outside of Seattle, Washington. And um, you know, when you do my sort of work with college students, uh, pastoring a bunch of 18 to 20 somethings in a Christian university, it's a hot mess. And <laughs> you, know, you have um, these moments though where you'll be midway through the semester where it's miserable and dark in Seattle. And it's just, everything's just sadder and the skies are dark gray. Portland gray is like a light gray. Seattle gray is a dark gray. I'm, I'm telling you facts. 
But halfway through the semester, I normally start talking to students and they fail the test or they're freaking out and they're getting afraid. They're like, I'm so nervous, I'm uptight. They're starting to get all, you know, all this, they're, they're fearful. And when you start to unpack it with them, you start to realize that all of their fear, just, just let me follow, show you the line of fear. Well, if I fail this test, I may not be able to get my grades up. If I can't get my grades up, I'll fail this class. If I fail too many classes, then I'm afraid that I'm, I might not make it to school. I'll lose my scholarship. If I lose my scholarship, I probably won't be able to finish school. If I don't finish school, I'm afraid I won't get the job I want. If I don't get the job I want, what about my career and my future? All my life was in that. If I don't get that, then I'm afraid that my family will be disappointed in me or how will I be able to live with it myself or how will I pay the bills? And if that, then I might be home and that and that you follow down the line and every fear if you follow it down the line it ultimately leads to death think about any fear that you have if you just keep following it let it tell its story it will ultimately fear always leads to death if I stay sick I'm afraid I'll, it's actually physical death if I don't get this job financial death if this relationship is not repaired relational death all of our fears lead to death and what does the gospel say it says that Jesus actually defeated death and if death has been defeated what is there left to fear we know this and our world knows this if you watch any superhero movie I love like the MCU Marvel Cinematic Universe for those who aren't following along I love superhero movies my girlfriend is so kind and she just comes with me out of obligation to me I guess but I love the superhero movies, but anyone who's ever seen a superhero movie, whether it be DC or Marvel or anything in between, if there is anything in between, you would know that one of the most consistent plot lines often is that the superhero typically somehow gives up their life in a sacrificial form of love to take on the enemy and dies. But somehow through some twist of imagination or creativity or a stone or whatever, the superhero somehow, whether it's Superman or the Avengers or someone, often somehow they come back from the dead and know what you see. You look into the eyes of the enemy and they start to freak out. Why? Because the enemy's only ultimate weapon is death. And if they take on death and come back from it, they have nothing left to throw at it. That is what the whole book of Revelation is talking about. We overcome by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and not living our lives unto death. Why? Because Jesus actually, you know what he does? This is the difference between hard power and soft power. Hard power fights. It attacks. It goes to Rome with the sword. Soft power goes, throw your best shot at me. And it has this ability to endure and take on more. And when the enemy has thrown all of its weapons and exhausted its weapons, there is nothing left to fight. Do you see why the gospel of Jesus is so good? It actually does not say that death is not a threat. It says death is a threat that has been defeated. The enemy's weapon, he can shoot the gun, or as the New Testament, or actually as the um, Genesis would say, you might bite his heel, but he will crush his head. Amen. Death has been defeated. So what happens if my worst fears become reality? What happens if your worst fears become reality? Resurrection. Fear, second of all, suffering. The story of scripture is not that God is going to one day fly us away in a disembodied state we call heaven where you're just gonna be with wings, which would be great if you like it, but you're just kind of floating and flying away forever with God out there somewhere. The story of the Bible is so much sweeter. It actually says that God is coming back. Behold, the dwelling place of man is with God or God is with man. He will be there. God will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from the eye. The dwelling place of God is with man here back on earth. The story is actually that God is coming back and he's coming to raise us up. What does that have to do with suffering? Imagine the year is 1961. Take yourself to East Africa for a moment. 1961, and this young mother is carrying her newborn child. And in this village in East Africa, 
you often would, you live in huts and you cook in open, over an open fire. And so this woman, her husband is in the field working. She's cooking over an open fire, holding her firstborn child. And all of a sudden she begins to feel something in her body where her legs begin to lock up in her face and her arms, her body. She's having a seizure and she drops to the floor and her baby drops in the fire. The baby's screaming, crying for help. No words, just screams. The mom is seizing on the floor. The father working in the fields hears the cries of his daughter and runs into the fire. (laughs) Ain't that a story right there? Runs into the fire and pulls his baby out. He eventually gets his wife up. Time goes on and this child has to have her legs amputated. Where's prosthetic legs? Story gets shorter to skip details. Eventually she moves to the States. This woman's my mother. And this little baby girl, my mom, has prosthetic legs, which is awesome. I love my mom. She's one of the most able people I've ever met. She's one of my heroes. Yet I've never ran with my mom, never on camping. Walks are hard sometimes. Finding parking is hard sometimes. If the resurrection is true, then her suffering is seen and one day there'll be a new body and I can go run with my mom. Do you understand how important the resurrection of the body is to suffering? Resurrection does not say that one day you will fly away without a body. Resurrection says, baby, God sees the body and he cares about it so much so that he's willing to restore it, make it better than new and raise these bodies up. Do you see how much better our message is? Esau Macaulay wrote this incredible work called Reading While Black, and here's what he says. He says, if Christianity is mere methods, a way of approaching reality, then it is inadequate. But if Christ has risen, trampling down death by death, then the world is a different place, even when I do not experience it as such. Without the resurrection, the forgiveness embedded in the cross is the wistful dream of a pious fool. But I am convinced that the Messiah has defeated death. I can forgive my enemies because I believe the resurrection happened. If death gives way to the power of God, so does my hate. But more than that, the resurrection is the final vindication for all, of all black hopes and dreams. If black anger arises from the disregard of black bodies and the failure to see us as persons, then the resurrected black and brown bodies are God's final affirmation of our value. Do you see how the resurrection speaks to pain and suffering? Can I tell you what I think enslaved, once enslaved Africans are gonna do when they meet Jesus in eternity? I think Jesus is gonna give them a hug. And he, as he holds them and they hold him, Do you know what they'll feel? They'll feel something familiar. They'll feel scars on his back and I bet he'll turn around and show him the whip marks in his back and say, you too? We have a God who steps into suffering and who gets it himself. The body matters. God sees suffering. He steps into it. And one day, family, he will redeem it. This is why Paul can taunt death without diminishing suffering. This is why he can say, and if you follow along, this is why he'll say, for, in, uh, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body will be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with the incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death 
has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Your labor's not in vain. Do you get what the resurrection tells us? It deals with fear and suffering, and then it says, baby, get to work. We have something to go tell people to come and see. We must be people who live into and out of the resurrection. You know, a few years ago, you wouldn't know this, but a few years ago, my friend, a friend of mine lost everything. He lost his business. He was making a ton of money, lost it, lost his house, lost everything. And he called me on the phone one day, and he said, Christian, I lost it all and I don't even know what to do. Will you come and talk with me? So we went to a restaurant and we talked and I felt like one of the only times I ever felt like this, I felt like I had kind of almost like a rude thing to tell him, but I just felt like it was from the spirit. So I was like, let me just risk going on a limb. And I said, uh, I said, my guy, if, well, just imagine this with me. Imagine I told you I had Oprah, actually better than me. Oprah gave you a check for $6 billion. Oprah would do that. Imagine Oprah gave you this check and, she said, it's in the bank. The money's there, but you can't touch it till you're 65. But six, it's Oprah. You know she's good for it. $6 billion in the bank. It's yours, but you can't touch it till 65. Imagine she gave you that check and she went home and you went home. The next morning you woke up and your house was broken into while you were asleep. Everything that you most valued was stolen. Your car was stolen. Everything was gone. And I said, how would you feel? And my friend said, I'd be so frustrated. I was like, yeah, you should be. That's a good response. I said, but how else? And he goes, well... You know, I'd be upset, but like, it wouldn't phase me the same way. And I was like, well, why? He goes, well, at the end of the day, I have $6 billion in the bank. And even though I'll have to do some work, and even though I'll have some pain, and even though I'll have some suffering, and even though I have some fear right now, what I have coming in the future is worth it. Do you see how sweet the gospel is? The pain and the suffering of this life is like a dewdrop in the ocean compared to what is ahead. You know, without resurrection, all we really have is outrage, outrage, avoidance, numbing, exhaustion, compulsion, fear, and hopelessness. The resurrection, though, is a better resource to handle fear a better resource to handle suffering, to handle evil, to handle disappointment, to even handle death. Followers of Jesus have better resources. So we must learn to see our present pain and our present suffering in light of our future promise. We must be that sort of people. And as Portlanders, we should have a capacity to live in darkness knowing that light is coming, to live in the cold knowing that the heat is on its way. How much more as followers of Jesus? We actually get this as Portlanders, and this is what the gospel is inviting us to. The word I just kept hearing over and over and over for the last weeks in my heart is that I believe God wants to make us, this is a weird word, but buoyant. Buoyancy. Say that, buoyancy. God wants to make us a people who are buoyant, who no matter, just imagine a buoy in the water, no matter what comes at us, no matter what pushes us down, no matter what waves topple us, we just come back. We just bounce back. We don't diminish it. We don't act like it's not happening, but we know what's ahead. We're a buoyant people. Or as Paul would say, I consider the present, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. If resurrection is true, it changes everything. It changes everything. In 1960, the poet John Updike, he summarized this so well when he penned this poem. You can close your eyes and listen if it helps. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecule re the amino acids rekindle, the church will fail. 
the same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of the enduring might, new strength to enclose. So let us not mock God with metaphor, with analogy, sidestepping transcendence. Make of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded crudelity of the earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. That's my invitation. Let us walk through the door, or as the angel said, come and see. In my life, I've personally wrestled with the resurrection, and I find that these women are not only compelling, I think they're telling the truth. I've seen how other followers of Jesus have gone before me and how they were changed by the resurrection. I think of my grandmother, who's 87 years old, and a few years ago on the phone, she was talking about some pain in her, her wrists, and she said, Christian, I'm, I know I'm at the downhill part of life. But I'm on the, she actually said the downhill side of the mountain. She says, but I'm not afraid. I know what's ahead. I've seen what the resurrection does for people in my life. And imagine what your life could look like if you deeply trusted the story, if you entrusted your whole life to the resurrection, trusted your whole life, what would it do to your fears? Imagine the fears that you face each day. What would it do to your suffering? What would it do for a city? Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning. And if that's true, the future for humanity is bright. If nothing else, wouldn't you want it to be true? If you don't even want to believe, like if you can't believe the resurrection, if, if you hear all this and you're like, no, I can't deal with it, like I don't think, I just, wouldn't you want it to be true? That death is defeated and injustice and evil and sin and sickness and pain will be done away with. If this is where humanity is headed, it sounds like good news. We say it each week, Jesus' invitation for each of us is come and follow. Come and follow. Just come and follow. Join the story. Come on in. But I think we start doing that by listening to the invitation of the angels. Come and see. Come walk through the door. Come step into the story. Come and see things for what they really are. Would you stand with me? Matthew is arguing that Jesus, the killed but then raised Messiah, is the son of Abraham, the son of David. He's saying that this is how God is showing up. This is God saving. This is God with us. This is the kingdom of God coming. This is the kingdom of heaven at hand. This is God fulfilling his original plan. Matthew leaves us with a story to reject and walk away from completely or to trust our whole lives too fully. He says there is a new kingdom and a new humanity and a resurrection ahead. He calls it good news for all people and invites you to come and see it for yourself. Jesus has been, either Jesus has been raised, he is king and there is hope because new creation is coming, it's beginning, it's already begun, or Jesus is dead and we should just live however we want. Actually, properly said, we should live however the hell we want since that this is all there is. I invite you, family, to come and see what these women and so many other people have seen. Which story is true and which story do you trust?